0: Time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, November 14th. I'm your host, Christian Knutson.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, a downtown Madison parking lot may soon be redeveloped into affordable housing as tall as 10 stories.
0: Madisonians have the opportunity to sponsor refugees as they adjust to life in the U.S.
1: An agricultural industry expert weighs in on the next farm bill.
0: And in the second half, Cardinal Call takes a look at co-op housing around UW campus, and Wildlife Weekly prepares to release more critters into their habitats. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: A new bill in the state legislature would close what backers say is a loophole that lets some convicted domestic abusers in Wisconsin get firearms, according to the Capital Times. The measure comes from two Democratic lawmakers and has support from State Attorney General Josh Call. They say it wouldn't add new restrictions on guns, but instead would clarify how courts treat different types of disorderly conduct convictions. Currently, no cases of disorderly conduct prevent offenders from accessing guns, even if they involve violence. The new bill would help courts identify misdemeanor cases involving domestic violence and limit access to firearms. So far, no Republican lawmakers have signed on to the proposal.
0: A federal appeals court ruled portions of Wisconsin's hunter-harassment law are vague and unconstitutional, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The case stems from a lawsuit filed by opponents of the state's wolf hunt. They challenged changes under former Governor Scott Walker's administration that significantly expanded the state's hunter-harassment law. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals agreed that the changes are too broad. Specifically, judges said parts of the law that prohibit people from quote, maintaining a visual or physical proximity, and quote, approaching or confronting hunters, are overly vague and could violate First Amendment protections. While wolf hunt opponents called the ruling a win, the hunts themselves were effectively outlawed last year after a federal court restored endangered species protections for wolves.
1: State lawmakers are looking to ease Wisconsin's teacher shortage by scrapping a reading proficiency test for new elementary teachers, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Currently, new teachers must pass the state's Foundations of Reading Test, or FORT, to get their license. It measures proficiency in what's called the Science of Reading, the state's required method for reading instruction. A new legislative proposal will remove the FORT requirement as long as a new teacher's college coursework covered concepts like phonics and comprehension. Backers point to a high fail rate for the fort and argue removing the test will help combat the state's ongoing teacher shortage. But some education experts and current teachers say the requirement helps ensure Wisconsin schools are effectively teaching students to read.
0: A new public funding deal to keep the Milwaukee Brewers in Wisconsin appears to be moving forward. The state Senate approved an amended package today, sending it back to the Assembly, where it is also expected to pass, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. The latest version of the deal has the state contributing about $365 million for operations at American Family Field. That's actually less than earlier versions of the plan, but that money will be made up by new ticket surcharges for non-baseball events like concerts. Meanwhile, Milwaukee County and City will pay about $68 million over the next two decades, and the Brewers' owners will kick in around $150 million.
1: A Dane County service that offers free tax filing help has been given a federal grant to support its work. The Richard Dilly Tax Center provides services for thousands of tax filers each year, including low-income families, seniors, and those with disabilities. According to a press release today from Dane County Executive Joe Parisi, the center received a multi-year grant from the IRS worth $55,000 annually. The Richard Dilly Tax Center helped residents file more than 2,500 returns last year, according to the press release.
0: A Madison Community Center is looking to expand its building and create affordable housing at the same time. The neighborhood house in the Greenbush neighborhood has unveiled plans to redevelop its current building as a six-story complex with 60 residential units, mostly for low-income residents, the Capitol Times reports. The ground floor would provide a larger community center space. The neighborhood house plans to take this proposal to the Planning Commission and City Council in the next two months. The majority of the new apartments would be for those making less than 30 percent of the local median income in madison a population that the city says has the most need the project has secured 1.36 million in funding from dane county and is waiting on approval for another 1.9 million dollars from the city
1: uw-madison police issued an alert this morning after a suspicious package was identified on campus near library mall According to the Daily Cardinal, law enforcement sent out alert messages to students and staff around 10.20 a.m. telling people to avoid the area. UWPD issued a all-clear alert about an hour later. The department has not issued any further information at this time. And now on to today's top stories.
0: A proposal to develop a downtown Madison parking lot into affordable housing is closer to becoming a reality. And now, city leaders are set to sign off on a proposal to increase the height of the potential buildings. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story. Brayton
2: Lot, or Block 113, is a two-acre surface parking lot owned by the city just off the Capitol Square on East Washington. It spans a whole block and is the last full block downtown that's completely undeveloped. Right now, it's serving as the staging area for the city's bus rapid transit project. But soon, it could be affordable housing. At a meeting last night, the Madison Plan Commission voted 5 to 1 to double the maximum allowed height of any buildings developed on the lot. Speaking at the meeting, Alder Juliana Bennett of Downtown Madison said the increased maximum height would create more possibilities for a city struggling with a housing shortage.
1: Ultimately, I think that in respect for our entire city's outcry for affordable housing and everything like that, we shouldn't lock ourselves into one building type. This allows us to be as creative and flexible as possible.
2: And Alder Derek Field of East Madison says that the 10-story maximum does not guarantee that the final designs will reach that height.
3: I wanted to note, too, that the building height limits that we're talking about are maximums. And so it is maybe intuitive to think in terms of what that maximum building height would look like. But given some of the um, you know, market constraints that others have raised tonight, I think we don't know that it would be 10 stories across the entire block, right? I think we should see what's viable. And I think the best way to do that is to not limit ourselves arbitrarily.
2: The Brayton Lot Redevelopment Project has been the subject of some community engagement work already, and city officials say they're working to keep the community involved in the whole process. In a survey this summer of 128 respondents, More than half said they wanted to see affordable housing prioritized over other uses, like market-rate housing or private parking. But not all members of the community are on board. Some neighbors say changing the zoning would change the character of the first settlement district and create a precedent for increasing future zoning changes in the area. Only two people spoke in the public comment period last night, and both were opposed. Here's Bob Kleba of East Gorham Street.
0: Uh, normally, Plan Commission is not the Wild West of zoning. I oppose this uh, resolution because the current zoning actually favors affordable housing, which is what I believe the sponsors of this resolution intend to promote. These sponsors wrongly believe that increasing the height will provide affordable housing.
2: Kleba adds that the increased maximum would simply make the lot irresistible to developers looking to establish 100% market rate housing. Alder Marsha Rummel, who represents the area where the lot is located and sits on the Urban Design Commission, agreed with Kleba's assessment.
4: Some developer will get really excited and maybe spend more money than somebody who's gonna provide the 30 to 50% AMI in the lower heights.
2: But the city is in a unique position because it owns the property. Heather Stouter, director of the city's planning division, says city leaders will have an unusual amount of say in how much
5: affordable housing should be set aside. At the end of the day, the city does you know, hold the cards as, well, as far as what will end up on the site based on the fact that we do own it and, and we'll be letting it for a request for proposals for development or perhaps developing it ourselves. We, we have not determined how best yet to move forward on this site, but the city is in control of the decisions in the end.
2: Yesterday's vote was 5-1 to one in favor of an increased maximum height. Only Commissioner Maurice Shepard voted against the change. With the Plan Commission's stamp of approval, the proposal now heads to the Common Council. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
1: The federal government's Welcome Corps program is an opportunity to help refugees adjust to life in the United States. Last week, Alight, a Minnesota-based nonprofit, hosted a series of meetings on the Refugee Sponsorship Program. WRT reporter Jess Miller was in attendance and has the details on how Madison residents can help with comments from several current sponsors.
6: Founded in 1978 as the American Refugee Committee, Minnesota-based Alight provides resources and economic opportunities to over 4 million people in over 20 countries each year. They're also a partner of the State Department's Welcome Corps program, which matches refugees with volunteer sponsor groups who serve as the final link in the chain between newcomers and the communities in which they resettle. Aiden Johnson does community outreach for a light. He was in Madison last week spreading the word about the sponsorship program and pleased with the community's response. We've been getting some really excited energy around the work that we're doing with our volunteers to welcome refugee newcomers. Currently, the Welcome Corps program is still in the matching phase and looking for sponsors. Sponsor groups must consist of at least five people to provide comprehensive support for their newcomers, from greeting them at the airport and making connections with new friends and colleagues, to helping them find housing in the community, job hunting, and ensuring newcomers feel safe and supported in their new home. Ultimately, sponsors are the last step in helping sponsored individuals transition from sponsorship to self-reliance. Dan Hussey had co-workers living in the Ukraine who were displaced when the war broke out.
4: Uh, She reached out to me and said, do you know anyone who would be willing to sponsor myself and my cousin? And I said, well, um, yeah, me. (laughs) So, uh, so that's essentially how the start of how I became a sponsor.
6: Dan worked with the u for u program through the U.S. government, but was still able to take advantage of some of Alight's services.
4: They were extremely helpful with figuring out what are some of the next steps and how to apply for some of the things once they, once they arrive here.
6: Although it took around seven months for the newcomers to arrive, they finally made it to Madison earlier this month.
4: We're actually going to go. There's actually a, um, a Ukrainian restaurant here in Madison that just opened out that long ago. So I think they're really excited. I'm going to take them there later this week to go try some. Actually, they're going to help me kind of get uh, more acclimated with what Ukrainian food is like.
6: Though there are no more in-person meetings in Madison, Alight hosts weekly volunteer information sessions on Zoom. Here's Aiden Johnson again. So if people want to learn more about Alight and the work that we're doing with our volunteers to welcome refugee newcomers, they can visit wearealight.org sponsorship. And uh, we'd love to connect with you and get you involved. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller.
1: Time is now 6 19 p.m and you're listening to the live local news on wort
0: as the threat of a federal government shutdown looms congress is also waffling over the next farm bill leaving uncertainties for farmers and other food and agricultural concerns pete harden is the editor of the milkweed a dairy industry watchdog that he publishes on a monthly basis he spoke with wort news producer faye parks this afternoon about what's in the works
2: The current iteration of the U.S. Farm Bill, which was signed into law in 2018, is set to hit several deadlines by the end of this year. If lawmakers cannot renew it in time, numerous programs that support the agricultural industry could be in serious danger, and consumers' pockets would take a serious hit. Pete Hardin of The Milkweed is on the phone with me now to share some insight. Thank you for joining me, Pete.
7: Good to be with you. I am a big fan of Wart.
2: So, the Farm Bill is renewed every five years. How does this process normally go?
7: Well, long ago somebody said there are two things you should not watch being made, sausage and laws, and I think that continues pretty accurately. First of all, you know, we in this conversation and in general conversations on this subject, we call it the Farm Bill. But I would argue that that's a bit of a misnomer. I think we ought to more appropriately call it the Food and Farm Bill because roughly 80% of the actual working budgets go towards nutrition programs. Everything from SNAP, formerly food stamps, to WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children's Supplemental nutrition programs. It's really a food and farm program. I think that's an important basis to keep in mind for talking purposes. In several recent years, the Farm Bill has run over its allotted lifetime and the programs were continued on a temporary basis until the new Farm Bill could be achieved. And unfortunately, Recent farm bill events have seen, too frequently, a very narrow vote in favor of the ultimate product passed by legislators who were running out the door to uh, go on vacation. So it's a delay, 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 and then hurry up and vote vote yes or no and let's go home kind of process. I would really argue that proper deliberation of our Food and farm policies would deserve better consideration than some of those end results.
2: It sounds like the main deadline of concern is December 31st. Is that generally when everything would expire?
7: Some things have expired, but they're being, they're being continued. And many of the other programs are contracted through, say, December 31st. There's so many programs out there. I don't know how anybody keeps tabs on all of them. How
2: likely would you say it is that lawmakers do not renew the farm bill in time? And if they don't, what would happen?
7: I'd say the odds are about 98% that a new farm bill will not be fashioned by the end of the year. And therefore, there will be an extension of the existing programs. Since 24 is a delicate election year, both in the legislature and for the White House, politicians may not be willing to make certain tough hard choices that they've talked about up to this point point. and one of the alternatives is a mere a merely a 5-year extension of the existing farm bill which would you know be status quo right or wrong i think the uh, accumulation of external factors affecting both food production and consumers economics we're in a world And I'm not sure the same old, same old is necessarily going to be most appropriate, but it might be better than nothing.
2: (laughs) And can you explain how exactly the farm bill affects dairy
7: prices? (laughs) Milk pricing is so complex. We have, for example, two or three different increasingly sophisticated programs that dairy farmers may voluntarily contract with USDA to give them some sort of, uh, call it milk price insurance. There are two or three different uh, programs. I don't want to get into the alphabet soup of their names for your listeners. I'll, I'll spare them that. But uh, that's a main one. But you also have significant purchases Of As a matter of public policy, significant purchases of dairy commodities, be it mozzarella cheese, gallons of milk, all kinds of nutrition programs here, which ultimately go to boost dairy product demand and help sustain farmers' prices. Every month in some of the the industry uh, weekly papers, you read... You know, the government wants to buy 40 million pounds of cheddar cheese or processed cheese or mozzarella cheese, you know, for nutrition programs. So uh, with roughly 80% of the budget in the farm and food bill going towards nutrition programs, they are a key component, but the, the beneficiaries include not only the farmers, but also the members of the public who are, are getting this uh, nutrition. And, and sometimes these programs are designed for export purposes for food assistance. And, you know, one of my one of my growly thoughts in recent weeks has been we look at the carnage in the Middle East and realize that these people are going to need food and yet it has to be the right food, and uh, we have the food resources, but uh, where's the discussion about food aid to the folks in the Middle East who are being so dramatically displaced?
2: Before I let you go, I was wondering if you would like to tell us about some of the main topics you explore in your latest edition of The Milkweed.
7: Could can, can I sort of switch on you a little bit?
2: Yeah, of course. What I'd
7: like to do is just throw out a few ideas about what I'd like to see in the farm bill in terms of increased uh, emphasis. For starters, emphasize local food to the greatest degree possible. You know, the average bite of food in the Midwest has traveled roughly 1,500 miles from where it was grown or hatched to where it's ultimately consumed, and that's that's pretty absurd. But you take everything from weather events to energy costs. To uh, other types of supply chain disruptions. I think the only rational policies we can emphasize would start with local food production to the greatest degree possible, including community-supported agriculture projects, community gardens, reducing food waste, backyard gardening, and, and fence row agriculture. So that's one area I feel very strongly about. And secondly, What we need to do in the extended Mississippi River basin, you know, from the Missouri River to the Ohio River, is increase federal programs to increase the organic matter in soil. Every 1% increase in soil organic matter adds moisture-holding capacity of 16,000 gallons per acre. Again, 1% more organic matter in the soil plus 16,000 gallons of moisture-holding capacity per acre. That's about the equivalent of three great big milk trailers. With Mother Nature increasingly being either too dry or too wet, uh, if we can capture the moisture and hold it in the soil, there'll be not only drought remediation but also flood remediation. I think that's really, really, really critical. You know, I think we need to also finally look hard at so-called green federal expenditures, because in the dairy industry, there's a big program through uh, jointly through USDA and the Energy Department to uh, basically give farmers free methane digesters, whereby the methane from dairy herds of over 3,000 cows is captured and burned, and uh, the heat is, from the burning is utilized one way or another. But the downside is that combustion of methane produces CO2, carbon dioxide, as a byproduct. And CO2 has an environmental shelf life of roughly 550 years on average. So I would much rather see us emphasizing composting of manure for and grazing, you know, grazing and composting as opposed to the big ticket, publicly funded items like, like methane digesters. We need to really look hard at what's True green and what's dirty green, in, in my opinion.
2: Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Pete.
7: Sure. You have a good day, and I appreciate the opportunity.
2: That was Pete Hardin, a local journalist whose monthly report, The Milkweed, keeps a close eye on the dairy industry. He shared some insight on the Farm Bill as it's set to expire at the end of this year. Pete says the Farm Bill could more accurately be called the Food and Farm Bill, and he's encouraging lawmakers to focus on the environment and food security nationwide.
1: The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining
0: us. The impacts of public schools are being celebrated across the country this week, including the role school libraries play in enhancing student curiosity. A Wisconsin organization says it's about more than having a quiet place to study, noting that today's libraries offer a lot of quality programs. Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
3: American Education Week is underway and those who work with Wisconsin school libraries are highlighting the value they provide to students. School libraries are often associated with study halls and research materials, but Kay Kapsel benning of the Wisconsin Educational Media and Technology Association says it's more than that. She points to the Battle of the Books program her group helps facilitate for districts around the state. Students can form teams, get a list of selected books from the library, and eventually compete in a contest to show how much they understand what they read.
1: That is one of our really successful programs. We have a high level of participation with districts around the state. You know, we appeal to everybody's competitive spirit.
3: (laughs) Kepsel Benning also directs library services at Elmbrook Schools in the Milwaukee area. Through partnerships with independent bookstores, her staff has been able to invite well-known authors to do readings at district libraries. She says that's another way to get kids excited about literature and making use of the library system. Kepsel Benning says finding successful ways to engage with students can create a word of mouth situation for a service that's always been there but doesn't automatically appeal to everyone.
1: A lot of times a student will invite a friend who is maybe not one of our frequent flyers into the library and that program will capture their
3: interests. She says making those connections hopefully inspires these students to be patrons of their community libraries after they finish school. The association also helps school library systems manage their budgets and officials say staff can always use more resources including volunteers. Parents are urged to learn more about library programs and see if they can help. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
1: On this week's edition of Cardinal Call, feature contributor Gavin Escott sits down with Daily Cardinal reporter Mary Bosch. They discuss the Zoe Bayless Cooperative's new location and what pushed Wisconsin's last student housing co-op to find a new home.
4: Hello, and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott.
1: And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim.
4: For decades, the Zoe Bayless Cooperative has been a home to hundreds of female and non-binary students on the UW-Madison campus. However, the future of Wisconsin's last student housing co-op was thrown into doubt when the university slated the building for demolition as part of the campus master plan in 2021, giving residents two years to leave. The plan, which aims to build a new humanities building on the site in 2026, left residents scrambling to find a new space, which they finally found this summer. Today, we're joined by our campus news writer, Mary Bosch, to discuss Zoe Baylitz's new location and the co-op's housewarming in October. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a timeline of this whole process? It's been
8: like a decades long kind of thing from the university. One of the alumni members on the board told the current and past presidents that even in like the 1980s, university housing had been talking about eventually moving them out for an academic building, but they had lived in that building for like 67 years. So the end of the school year in 2021, like summer 2021, that they told Zoe Bayless officers that you're gonna have to move out in like two years. So that's when they had to start. looking and start
4: looking at other options. And after the university released its master plan and gave Zoe Bayless two years, did they work with the co-op to help them find a new location?
8: They did try to work with the co-op to come to a solution. What they offered was that Zoe Bayless could live in one floor of the Phillips Hall dormitory in Lakeshore. But that was not really a solution because it would have raised rent. It would have reduced their common spaces. It would have cut their membership in half. The officers went and toured the space like they did consider the option but it's like they would have had one hall and then they would have had like a kitchen downstairs so it's not like having a whole building and having a whole space it kind of defeats the whole purpose of cooperative living it would, it would have been a downgrade yeah it would have been more like an affinity group it wouldn't have been a cooperative
4: Yeah. Reading your article, I was really struck by the adversarial relationship that university housing had with Zoe Bayless, which you noted was at odds with their professed goals of supporting affordable housing. And you talked to current and past residents of the co-op and university housing. Did this tension originate with the UW master plan or has this been a larger problem throughout the years?
8: I think that it's always been a larger problem. I think the university says they're going to support cooperative living, but in reality, they're supporting their own goals and their own master plan. Like, they want this building to be made. And I mean, they tried to provide options, but Zoe Bayless having exactly what they want was not their number one priority. And even the officers told me that when they were in a meeting with University Housing, University Housing was saying, Oh, we thought that the predecessors wouldn't want to continue the co op. They were very surprised that Zoe Bayless officers were so committed to keeping things going. And the officers were like totally shocked by that because all of them felt very strongly about keeping things going. That might have had something to do with COVID kind of killing it for a year. And that's like right before they had to make this move. But still, is like University Housing didn't understand the value that all of the officers and all of the residents place into that and that they really wanted it to continue.
4: So a lack of communication and a lack of trust between the two sides.
8: Yeah, definitely. Because the communication from university housing was always kind of spotty. They would do the contract every year. And since the 2015 master plan, they vaguely knew they were going to be kicked out at some point. But they would try to ask, you know, like, what is the ETA on that? And it wasn't until two years in advance that they were actually told that they were going to have to move out. And yeah, there was not a sense of trust. I had some quotes in article that the presidents gave me calling the experience of diversity housing like traumatic, saying that they were shady, that they always told half-truths. They tried to make it seem like the Zoe Bayless officers were the ones like doing something wrong when they
4: weren't. After Zoe Bayless found its new location, they found it through a different partner?
8: Yeah, so they actually ended up collaborating with like a cooperative group called Madison Community Cooperative or MCC for short and when they have rejected the Phillips Hall option from University Housing they were kind of in communication with MCC but it wasn't like a definite thing but MCC houses like 11 other cooperatives in Madison also and they were able to offer like a house to Zoe Bayless because there was other options that the officers were looking at as well like they were looking at a bunch of like old sorority houses and stuff on Langdon but those would have been, like, really expensive, and they would have had to do a lot of fundraising and maybe even raise rent, which, again, kind of destroys the point of, like, the affordable cooperative living. Yeah. And also, the current president, Molly, told me that they prefer to kind of be housed under something. It, it feels like it works better for them to be a part of something. Like, it makes it
4: easier. To be a kind of collaboration?
8: Yeah, like either being housed by University Housing or by this cooperative group. To have that extra support... Is something that they wanted.
4: You talked to numerous Zoe Bayless residents throughout this process. Has MCC been a good partner?
8: I mean, they don't have a super direct relationship with MCC, like the residents now. The main relationship with MCC was just during the renovation process because the Zoe Bayless house was in disarray originally. Apparently, people had to go in with like hazmat suits for the first time when they were cleaning it out. Both the presidents told me like that they're very grateful to MCC. They're very happy to be a part of it. The renovation process was kind of a nightmare. The classic thing of a contractor is they're going to say
4: like, it'll be done. Overpromise and underdeliver.
8: Yeah, exactly. So, in the renovation process, things had to get very like do it yourself. People's parents came in, like old friends came in, old residents came in and like helped the process just because MCC was not following through, like they would say like, "Oh, we can't find a contractor to finish this." And the president would be like, "Um, what about like My sister or something (laughs) like that's just how it would be. But they are very they're all grateful to be a part of MCC. But I don't think they have like a super direct relationship with them, like at least the residents.
4: Mary, you kind of touched on the key word of the semester. This semester, the Daily Cardinals action project was DIY or do it yourself. And while DIY can often be an amorphous concept, our management conceptualized it as community. How do you see Zoe Bayless connecting to DIY?
8: I think just Zoe Bayless surviving and the house getting finished before August 15th is a testament to the community that Zoe Bayless has built. Because so many people came in to help with that process. And even just how committed the two, the president and the former president and also their business manager were. Like the three of them moved into that place over the summer and like killed themselves like Trump trying to get it ready, they said they did it because they couldn't imagine Zoe Bayless not existing. It's a space where their needs are met and they're also given like friends and they're given a space to like live and it just supports them and so they want to like
4: support back. It's more than just housing. It's really a community here.
8: It, it really is. Every person I talked to said, you know, I met most of my best friends in Zoe Bayless. Like, my closest friends are, you know, the people I live with. And I went in for an interview and I was down in the kitchen, like, chilling with everyone. It's so homey and it's so nice. And it's a place where, you know, you're going to feel like, like where you're living is okay. Like, you're going to have friends, you're going to have food, you're going to, it's not going to be too expensive. And it gives people, like, that leeway to really shine and really come to their full potential.
4: Over the course of your reporting, is there anything else that stood out to you?
8: I really think just like the presidents, like the former president and the current president, their commitment to getting this finished and just like how much they cared. Angela, the former president, like told me when she was at the housewarming party, she had this like moment of realization where she was like, wow, I don't have to think about Zoe Bayless moving for the first time in like two years. Because from the second that they found out that they were getting kicked out, they were on looking for houses, the finances of it all. Like They were working on that and then there was the whole piece of actually moving and renovating. So just their commitment to that. And then also I would just say the housewarming party, it was just a really amazing energy in there. It just felt so homey and like such a community. There was a lot of former residents, also just like older people that had some connection to it in the past. There was like old cooks that the president, Molly, told me it was kind of like seeing your aunt again or something or like an old family member and I I mean I talked to the former cook and he was just saying like he stayed there for seven years after working in like a professional restaurant because he just I mean I think he kind of felt like a dad to everyone like felt like it was his kids that he was feeding and I think the residents feel that too or they just feel connected to the people supporting them so just the sense of community.
4: Mary thanks so much for joining us.
8: Thank you again for having me.
4: In other campus news, industry leaders across Wisconsin called for lawmakers to support the planned UW-Madison engineering building. In an open letter placed in newspapers, CEOs and others encouraged legislators to meet the gap in funding created when the Republican-controlled legislator killed funding for the building over the summer. UW-Madison has said private donors may withdraw support if additional funding is not secured. In other news, the UW System Board of Regents voted Friday to approve a $32 million plan to expand engineering, nursing, data science, and business programs. Republican lawmakers are unlikely to approve the plan without an agreement to cut diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And in other news, a series of wins propelled both the Wisconsin men's and women's hockey teams to number one for the first time since the 2006-2007 season. The ranking was welcome news in a weekend where the Badgers football and basketball team lost in home games and the women's volleyball team lost their second game of the year to Penn State, dropping them down to third place. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com, especially the Fall Action Project, which is on stands now. The Fall Action Project, the DIY issue, examines the various forms of community in Wisconsin and the Madison area. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
0: now 6 48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on wort on tonight's edition of wildlife weekly feature contributor jackie sandberg shares how things are going at the dane county humane society's wildlife center namely which animals have been recently released into the wild and which ones are still in their care yeah.
5: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to give a wonderful update of all of the really cool animals that we've gotten to release here in this fall period because it is just starting to get cold and our patient census is starting to decline a little bit. This is what we typically call our slow season in Wisconsin because we have such a seasonal type of wildlife program where babies are typically being admitted between the April to October months. And then between October and April every year, we have mostly adult animals, mammals and raptors and some reptiles still coming through. But it's our time to start doing fall cleanup and overwintering of certain patients, ones that maybe missed their migration. So I thought I'd give a quick recap of what's been released and then what's still in-house here for the next couple of months, which is very exciting. So I think some of my favorite releases have been recently the Northern Short-Tailed True, which we did a WORT segment about a little while ago. I happily released Back to His Home Territory. We have released a couple of raptors, including three young, or meaning hatchier, first-year juvenile red-tailed hawks. They were here with us for different reasons, a couple of them traumatic injuries, and those red-tailed hawks were placed back in their natal habitats. We know that they were first-year birds because they had uniform plumage on all of their flight feathers, meaning that they didn't have any feathers that suggested that they were older. They had brown barred tails instead of bright red, which you'll usually see in red-tailed hawks beginning in their second to their third year. And there wasn't any sort of molt limit in the flight feathers of the wing, meaning that feathers hadn't really been replaced much yet. So all juvenile uniform plumage, which means they were younger, so they were with us for quite a while learning how to hunt and being able to recover in our outdoor largest flight enclosure. So they were successfully banded and released. We've also released a couple of owls, great horned owls and barred owls in the last few weeks, and then a fox that was absolutely beautiful. The red fox was brought in because it had sarcoptic mange, which is a parasite that digs and buries deep under the skin. It's called scabies, if you've heard of that before. And it affects a lot of our canids, which are our you know coyotes, foxes, and a couple of other species as well. Currently, we actually have a chipmunk with mange mites, its own type of mange, that is recovering and will be here for a while this winter. But the fox that came in with mange was successfully treated, and then when it was able to grow back all of its fur, because it has to fall off first, then it was moved outside so that I could be conditioned and acclimated to the weather. And just before it got cold here, we were able to release that fox back where it came from, which was actually quite a distance out in Prairie du Sac so we have our mammals that has been super fun we also have seen a good number of other raptors like eagles we have two bald eagles that are in care right now that are just about at the point where we're giving them their pre-release exams meaning that we are flight testing them outside making sure they've recovered from their injuries and doing something pre-release which includes double checking their blood work monitoring them in the outdoor cages seeing if they can fly effectively catch food get food bank around corners if they they had ocular trauma, a whole lot of other things, and then just getting exercise, because exercise can just be so important. Imagine you're a bird with a fractured wing, sitting in a cage for two, three weeks trying to recover from that bone being broken. Yes, believe it or not, it only takes a couple of weeks compared to humans, which can take months. Birds are very fast at healing fractures. But still, their, their muscles are going to atrophy, they're going to get tired, and they're not going to be as useful. A bird is usually out there flying every day, all the time, trying to catch their food and survive in the wild. So sitting in rehabilitation in a treatment cage is, you know, not exactly a bird's favorite thing to do, I imagine. So it's sitting there, not able to move as much restricted housing. So they really need that time and that outdoor space to get those muscles back into good condition, especially the pectorals, which are the biggest flight muscles around the keel. We've had our eagles that are just getting our practice outside. We also have a lot of songbirds. We've been able to release a whole bunch of different birds, but right now we've released morning doves mostly, a couple of cedar waxwings here just before it got a little bit cold and they'll stick around for quite a while through the fall here. We've had an American Robin. We have another one that's in care just about ready to be released. We have a hermit thrush that just moved outside and is just about cleared for release, and a number of dark-eyed juncos, one of my favorite sparrow species that come here in the winter. Beautiful little black birds, black and brownish, but with white tail feathers on the outside. You've probably seen them around on the ground foraging for insects and other foods, a little bit more omnivorous for them. They also like to visit your bird feeders, you might have seen them too. So we have that, and then also kinglets have been pretty prominent this year. We was talking to one of our volunteers who also helps with some banding stations. We have a couple of them that are quite large in the Midwest. Out in Ohio, for example, the Black Swamp Observatory has seen an abnormally large number of kinglets come through on migration this year. So it's kind of neat. It's been more than most other years. We've also seen that the wildlife center kinglets have been coming through. We have the golden crown kinglet and the ruby crown kinglet. So we have one that has just moved outside and will be exercising also before it's time for release. So those are a lot of our mammal and our avian species. We also got to release a ring-billed gull that was in our care just a couple days ago. We have a mallard duck that is almost ready for release here coming up soon. Came in lethargic to a vet clinic and was really sad, but really couldn't find anything majorly wrong with him. Just apparently needed some time and recovery and fluids and supportive care and seems to be doing great. And then we've had a really cool success of bats being released, a few of them that were kind of misplaced during the early migration here. And my other favorite, a common garter snake that had swallowed a fish hook. Yes, you heard that right, it swallowed a fish hook. Might have swallowed a fish and a fish hook. But regardless, our team at UW-Madison, the Special Species Program, our wildlife medicine vets, were able to surgically repair the internal intestine of that snake where the hook had perforated its GI tract. And believe it or not, it was a complete success. And that garter snake was able to be released here just in time for winter. So a lot of really cool things happening at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. So many different species. We really appreciate all the community's support and seeing all of the animals that we have come through. We also, as a happy update, got to release our first ever bob kitten. If you hadn't read the stories yet, please read them. They are on our website at www.giveshelter.org. It was a really fun release here in the last couple of weeks back in Mazomanie, which is where the bob kitten was found. So we enjoy the diversity of species. We're here to help if you find anything sick, injured or orphaned, and we're available to help you with your calls if you have them about wildlife. You can contact us at 608-287-3235. Thanks again for supporting Wildlife Rehabilitation in Wisconsin and listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson.
0: Jess Miller was your reporter.
1: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, and Hugh Won Lim.
0: Dave Lawrenson engineered the show.
1: Faye Parks produced this newscast.
0: And Charlie Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish-language news with Inuestro In Patio. Good night.